You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by IETP's European Director, Shafali Sharma, and IETP's uh, intern, Laurel Levin, who is uh, on her last day of the internship, getting ready to fly back to the United States from Germany. Uh, Shafali, Laurel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Uh, so you two were at the COP24 in Poland uh, over the last few days, a couple weeks. And um, the COP is uh, a conference on climate change. Um, Shafali, can you give us a brief history of what the COP is? What does COP stand for? Why, why does this conference happen? In 1992, there were uh, a series of treaties signed and the climate treaty was one of them. Um, and as part of that, uh, we have the UNFCCC, which is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, so UNFCCC. And um, so every year, the Conference of the Parties, which are all the, the parties that are signatories to the climate treaty, meet and um, negotiate what they're going to do on climate change. And we've had 24 of these COPs, and the 24th one was in Katowice, Poland, that um, Laurel and I just attended. So, Laurel, this was your first time attending this conference. Um, what were you looking for going into it, um, and what kind of expectations did you have? So, I kind of coming into this have was kind of wearing two hats, one as an intern for IATP, and learning so much about livestock sector coming out of the Emissions Impossible Report and the role that should play in the uh, climate negotiations. And then also the second hat is um, as an activist through Fossil Free. So going in, I was really curious to see, you know, what, what, does, what is IETP's role um, there and who are the colleagues and other people in IETP's network? Um, and how do they interact with negotiations? And then also from like a fossil-free perspective, who are the other activists there and what are their demands and how do they interact with the space? What was your impression of how uh, civil society organizations were able to interact with the negotiations? Um, I mean, it definitely took different forms. It was really inspiring to see. We came with um, like a two-pager version of Missions Impossible and also some key takeaways through like the through the Clara report which talks about getting to a 1.5 staying on a 1.5 path you, while honoring um, human rights you know for me i started paying attention around the time of the paris agreement um can you again just a bit of history on what led up to the paris agreement and then maybe a couple of things that have happened since i mean i know it's a it's a pretty complex story yeah, it's a, it really is a pretty complex story because it depends on how far back you want to go. Um, the original treaty that was signed, we, um, you know, we had an aggregate target. Uh, there was parties from, um, so industrialized countries were part of Annex, something called Annex 1, which was the Kyoto Protocol. Um, the Kyoto Protocol had a mandate for Annex 1 countries to mitigate by a certain percent below 1990 levels. Um, since then, many people pulled out, many governments pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol. Um, in 2008, we had the Copenhagen COP, where Obama 
came in and negotiated sort of a different framework uh, for the climate negotiations. So that kind of turned everything bottom up in some ways. It required countries to come up with their own nationally determined uh, mitigation targets. And uh, whereas previously, prior to that, um, governments were supposed to work together to achieve an aggregate target of emissions, meaning um, uh, to not exceed greenhouse gases above a certain limit so that we could limit global warming and prevent catastrophic climate change. And for much of the last couple of decades, that figure was uh, a fight between um, will it take us 1.5 degrees Celsius warming uh, to prevent really catastrophic change or two degrees Celsius? And what has happened since, and especially this year, it's become very clear that, um, uh, and this is based on the IPCC report, that um, it's very clear that we have to limit uh, global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, that even with 1.5 degrees Celsius, we're going to see, you know, impacts on a large number of ecosystems. But if we let uh, this planet warm up even more than that, we're going to really see a lot of uh, dramatic changes and, and catastrophic impacts on life as we know it. And we're already seeing it, right? We're already seeing intensified hurricanes. We're seeing the Arctic ice melt. Um, there's more and more research about um, tipping points and and effects that we hadn't foreseen before. So in 2015, um, as more and more of the science was emerging, there was this big push to say, all right, we're going to come up with a deal, which was the Paris Agreement, to maintain warming to below two degrees, but to our best extent, you know, below 1.5 degrees. IATP's role when you were there was to be um, presenting the findings of both the Emissions Impossible report that we released with Green and then the uh, Climate, Land, Ambition, and Rights Alliance, or CLARA, report on a just pathway to 1.5 uh, degrees warming. Um, how did you go about presenting those findings uh, at the COP? Yeah, I mean, our purpose at the COP was um, for uh, several reasons we were there. And one was to um, engage with this network called the CLARA, um, uh, the Climate, Land, Ambition and Rights Alliance, which is a group of NGOs around the world who are engaged on um, forest conservation or or human rights related to um, development in forests and displacement of indigenous people, um, also people working on agricultural issues and food rights. And, and obviously the, our common denominator is real concern that some of the solutions being proposed for mitigation um, might displace some of the um, some of the most marginalized populations on the planet, but also folks who have least uh, to do with the climate emissions themselves. And not just that, um, we did a peer review uh, study, uh, the Missing Pathways report, 
which actually shows that forest ecosystem restoration, forest re restoration, agroecological approaches to um, farming can actually um, help avoid emissions and 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 for um, you know go a long way towards uh, being part of the solution. So um, some of the really kind of geoengineering shady technologies that are being proposed that are almost in the sci-fi world. This was one way to, to actually show, look, we don't need these kinds of crazy blue sky um, technologies that will end up, you know, using a lot of land as well as displacing a lot of people. Um, we can have an equity framework and still uh, be able to, to get there. And part of the way that we did this, both um, that IATP did this at the COP was through um, talking about our findings from the Emissions Impossible report. So uh, talking about who the real culprits are when it comes to agricultural mitigation or agricultural emissions. Um, and that's some of the largest dairy and meat conglomerates that are, um, are producing and, and exporting all around the world but also that part of the solution is then this transition away. And we circulated a lot of our reports and a lot of our flyers and, and our, we did a four pager that um, sums up our main findings from Emissions Impossible and the Missing Pathways report. And as well as we're on several panels. So uh, we had two panels that we presented on, uh, which gave us an opportunity to share our findings and to hear back from folks um, and have an engaged discussion about these issues. Uh, talk a bit about that discussion. Um, is civil society more or less on the same page on some of these issues around just transitions? Um, uh, what is the gap between where civil society is at and where the negotiators might be at, or if there are any? Um, well, you know, civil society, there's a large number of groups that come to this. So there's a, you know, within Clara, of course, within that network, there's, um, we have a common position on things. But um, outside of that network, I think that there's a broad range of opinions about um, what needs to happen in agriculture or even in the forest sector in terms of mitigation. I don't think that there is broad consensus around this issue um, with civil society at large, but I would say that there is a significant number of NGOs and social movements who believe that um, forest restoration and ecosystem management is, should be our priority when it comes to the land sector. Um, and that these kinds of solutions that basically give loopholes to polluters in terms of offsets and trading is, is the wrong solution. I think that there is a large uh, number of groups that believe that, but there's also a few large um, NGOs that believe the opposite. So um, that's not an easy consensus to create. But I would say that even bigger gap is um, what is at stake right now for humanity and the fact that the IPCC tells us we have 12 years within which to really get on this 1.5 degree uh, Celsius uh, track, but governments don't seem to be in a real mood to take that seriously enough to actually put down some, some drastic, you know, dramatic actions that need to take place that it doesn't seem to translate into real commitments. I mean, the commitments that governments made 
under the Paris Agreement, it's widely reported to take us to a, a planet that's going to warm to three to five degrees Celsius. So that, that's going to be uninhabitable, basically. And what we need to do now is to really match our actions um, to what is what the imperative is of the hour. And I think that was perhaps the most um, disheartening aspect of being there is to see how far away that negotiating hall is from this reality and this sense of urgency that we've started to see in the media and that scientists are recognizing. Do you feel like the negotiators, you know, you had talked about how the, the will of governments is sorely lacking compared to where the world is at. But do you feel like there's an acknowledgement amongst the negotiators that um, the, the views of civil society really need to be taken seriously? Um, and do you feel like you had access at the COP to the negotiators to really kind of get those views across? Um, I think there is tremendous amount of access to negotiators. Um, I think the, the question is there's negotiators and then there's politicians. And this week you have a lot of high-level ministers at the COP. And ultimately it's, it's the high level at the political level that these agreements are, are made, right? It's, it's about the final equation. Um, what is the government, who is the government listening to and, and what are the costs of, of agreeing to X, Y, and Z? And I think what we're seeing is that the, uh, the corporations, fossil fuel corporations and many of the um, corporate highly emitting industry still has a big ear of the governments, right? Many governments, particularly the ones that are powerful like the United States and um, the UK, many of the members in the EU. Um, Germany is not, for instance, going to make its target, uh, even though it had a really ambitious climate target um, for 2022. And it's unlikely that they're going to make it even for 2030. And well, hopefully we can stop that. Hopefully there's going to be a movement in Germany that's going to say, no, this actually can't be a political outcome. And uh, we are not going to elect this government if if this government doesn't do everything in its power to get us on this on track to meeting our targets by 2030. That's our hope, right? This is why we do the work we do. And um, But do we see that in the negotiating halls? I think in the negotiating halls, you can do damage control. You can try to push your best language in. Negotiators um, will either listen to you or will not listen to you, but ultimately they have to listen to their boss, which is the, their political master. And I think that's where the problem is. So this is ultimately a political problem. And I think it'll be solved outside of the negotiating halls. And I think my, my last blog, uh, Leaving the Cop, kind of reflects this. I mean, there were, I really felt on the train back that, um, that civil society should do a collective walkout of the cop and actually shame these governments into action. And I imagine that many governments that Laurel's talking about, you know, the small island states that are going to, you know, virtually disappear because of climate change, they would be game because, I mean, who are we kidding? It's 2018, you know, we signed this treaty in 1992. It's time. I mean, and, and we're very mm -hmm. clear about where we're going. And if we don't take that action now, when are we going to do it? And I, and I, and I, I was very inspired by, this uh, really famous 15-year-old Swedish uh, girl, uh, 
teenager, Greta Thunberg, who left school, whose school supported her to speak amongst these negotiators and to say exactly the same thing, that um, we don't expect change from you guys because you haven't done anything in, in 24 cups, but change is coming. And that's the only um, that hope that I have is that change is coming and it's going to come from our young people and it's going to come from those of us who watched this and said, you know, enough is enough. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we had a positive result in the elections, in the U.S. elections, and we need to building on that momentum and really make this uh, an important issue in the years to come in the United States as well. You know, I want to close on that <laughs> um, because we have this potential to have this special select committee on climate change in the United States. Um, and the term that they've been throwing around and has really gotten some traction is the Green New Deal. Um, and, you know, we focus a lot on the renewable energy sector when we're talking about building infrastructure, but food and agriculture is really going to have to be a part of that. Um, to, to what extent do you think IATP's work now fits into that framework of a Green New Deal? I think there's huge potential. Um, a lot of work that Shafali and I had done at the COP was speaking with other civil society organizations about what does bridging the climate justice narrative and what ITPs, what the Emissions Impossible is saying about livestock and agriculture as a whole, what is, you know, what is, how can the climate justice conversation also be used to talk about livestock? And I think agriculture, agriculture, of course, is a huge player in climate change and that it's an impact, but also a solution too. And so, through the Green New Deal, I think there's potential to both on like um, engaging other civic action and to talk about agriculture in ways that are outside of the market and outside of individual choices, but really seeing it in the same way that we see fossil fuel companies or, you know, and using it to help hold our representatives accountable. And also as a way to bring in other stakeholders to really engage more with farmers, like the way that IATP has talked about for 30 years. I think that's a deficit in the, at least in the coastal communities of activism. Um, and I think the Green New Deal can help far, further foster a space to talk about like why farmers are really important in a transition um, out of industrial scale. Because the Green New Deal is really talking about broadly of how do we get move from an extractive-based fossil fuel economy to economy that's regenerative both for natural resources but also for people and livelihoods, including jobs. And so for agriculture, that needs to include farmers. So I think under the umbrella of the Green New Deal is the umbrella of the conversation on just transitions. And there's so much potential there for agriculture and livestock issues to play a part in that. All right. Well, Shufali and Laurel, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Josh. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including the reach of Holly's blogs from the COP, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I want to remind you this podcast is available for download on Stitcher and iTunes. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a positive rating. If you have any questions about what you heard today, you can email jwise at iatp.org. Thanks for listening.